You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is Brian McClanahan, your host, and this is episode 35. And this is a unique uh, Week in Review because it actually is going to cover two weeks. Um, we were absent for a couple of weeks uh, dealing with some with some. Uh, personal issues. So uh, this is going to be a hybrid week in review, and we're going to cover the weeks of July 11th through the 15th and July 25th through the 29th. So what I'm going to do in this particular podcast is hit the highlights of those uh, two weeks, the things that I thought were uh, very interesting and important, and uh, we'll move on from there and be back to our regular scheduled uh, once a week week in review beginning the first week of August. So um, apologize for not having a podcast for a couple of weeks, but we're back and we should be uh, good to go from here on out. So, a uh, couple of things. First and foremost, if you are listening to this, there's only um, a couple of weeks left now, actually, before our next conference in Atlanta, Georgia, on nullification. And so the time is running out to register for that. Uh, it is uh, going to be a good time, and I think uh, very informative. So if you're interested in signing up, go to our website. We have a link for it right on the front page under uh, You're Invited or Events. And uh, you can go out there and register there, or you can, um, if you don't feel comfortable registering online, you can contact Dr. Livingston and register that way. Uh, And all that information is available on the website. So go ahead and check that out. Uh, We have six speakers confirmed, and um, you will get lunch that day. So uh, it will be, like I said, a highly informative conference on a topic that I think no matter who wins the presidency in November, it's still going to be an important concept. Because federalism never gets old. Uh, the idea that we have a federal government, not a national government. I mean, this is the key to the entire argument. And uh, I think the conference is going to show that um, this idea of federalism was not born in 1860 uh, or you know, even 1798. Uh, it predated that even. So uh, I think that uh, you'll find that you'll get a lot of ammunition when you are debating with your friends or non-friends on uh, social media or whatever have you uh, about this particular topic and how you can refute their particular positions that, uh, one, I think there's one that's most egregious, that all of this stuff will produce uh, you know, bloodshed, armed conflict. That's just simply not true. Uh, and I think the historical evidence points in that direction. Okay, so let's talk about some of the material we had in the last couple of weeks, and I'm going to go over five uh, articles in that time. Uh, The first is a piece we ran a couple of weeks ago on July 12th, entitled The Free State of Jones, History or Hollywood. And this piece was written by Ryan Walters, and uh, Ryan Walters wrote a great book on uh, Grover Cleveland, uh, which you can get on Amazon, I believe. And I think that the title is The Last Jeffersonian, so you should go out there and check that out. And I think he's, he's working on a book on Lincoln, if my memory serves me correctly. But uh, Ryan's from uh, Jones County, Mississippi, which uh, is where this uh, new film uh, that Gary Ross produced is uh, centered on during the war and then in Reconstruction. And so what he does very, very well in this particular piece, I might say, is go through all of the historical inaccuracies in the film. Now, this film opened up to over 2,000 theaters nationwide. Right? It, was, it was highly publicized, highly advertised. 
Uh, it had major reviews and in, in, uh, in publications, you know, your, your your popular publications, and it was supposed to put the nail in the coffin of the quote unquote lost cause myth. I mean, that was the point of the film. I think from the beginning, it's a presentism film. They're trying to look at the past through a present lens, and they got all kinds of things wrong in doing that. You contrast that to a couple of other films that uh, were pretty good on this, not this particular topic, but the war that have come out in the last few years, and what kind of publicity they had. One was uh, came out in 1999, so not a couple of years, but it's, it's been a while, almost 20 years now, but uh, is, the, is the film Ride with the Devil that had some very famous actors in it, directed by a critically acclaimed uh, director, and it opened to eight, eight theaters nationwide. And I think it was only in maximum like 50 at one point. Uh, because it was blacklisted, primarily because you had a uh, peer, use of period language. I guess at that time people were too sensitive. But the most important thing is that you had a gasp black confederate, right? So um, it doesn't show any of that in, in any kind of anti-historical light. It's not some type of lost, quote-unquote, lost cause mythology film. It's pretty accurate in its depiction of this war in Missouri and uh, how people struggle with that. But again, because it was not politically correct, it opened to eight theaters nationwide. Uh, then you have the film Copperhead, uh, which uh, came out a few years back uh, by Ron Maxwell. And again, this is about northern descent during the war in New York State, which was very accurate. And it's a fictional story, but it's very accurate in how this descent was uh, put down, how people responded to it. But again, it opened up to you know uh, maybe 50 theaters uh, nationwide. And um, so these films that have a little more complex view of the war uh, don't get the kind of publicity that a film that looks at the war through a politically correct present narrative does with the sole objective of beating back this quote-unquote lost cause mythology. So uh, what Ryan does very well here is, again, go through all of the things that are incorrect. And he, he breaks it down very well in different points. So he says the title is even incorrect. Uh, <laughs> that they didn't even call it the Free State of Jones. It was the Republic of Jones or Jones County Confederacy or a confederacy within a confederacy. Uh, but it was never the Free State of Jones. In fact, that Free State of Jones goes back before 1860. Um, and so this was an incorrect title. Um, he also brings up the fact that Jones County Unionism was not as strong as the film makes it out to seem. Um, uh, in fact, he says there were just about th over 300 blacks in the whole county in 1860. Uh, he says the film makes it seem as though the majority unionist Jones Countyans reacted against the plantation slave cotton economy in the South. Uh, but that wasn't, that wasn't true. Uh, there's a lot of fictional characters in the film. Um, and he says the film completely missed the fact that the Knight Company, which is Newton Knight's company, was burning homes and plundering farms of those who remained loyal to the Confederacy in a fashion much worse than actions undertaken by the Confederate Army. Um, so the, the film tries to portray Newton Knight as a glorious hero, uh, you know, this um, libertarian secessionist in a way, and it's just simply not true. Uh, the Battle of Ellisville, um, which is the... Uh, full-pitched battle in the middle of town, he says, completely fabricated. It never happened. Uh, this was just made up for the film. Um, and there really wasn't any kind of, of battle like that uh, during, during the actual um, uh, event itself. And he uses, I mean, look, 
the the Free State of Jones is claimed to be a film with footnotes, and Ryan goes after all of that stuff. You know, the, these books are are not accurate. Uh, he uses Ryan uses the two books that have been produced on the Free State of Jones, quote unquote, that are that are the best, and they're not pro South. They but they've been written on the topic, and he says all this stuff that this film is fabricated. It's all Hollywood. Uh, the Declaration of the Free State of Jones. He says it's um, it's incorrect. Um, that that was basically just you know made up, and in fact, Newt Knight never claimed the county seceded. Uh, he only gave one interview, and that was in 1921. Um, and he even said, "quote There's one story that after Jones County seceded from the Union, she seceded from the Confederacy and started up a free state of Jones. That ain't so." Uh, and so he says, "This you know re- never really happened." Uh, Newt Knight's character is also a question. Uh, you know, the fact the film portrays him to be a great man, um, but he sa- Ryan says most Jones Countyans then and now had a low opinion of Knight. He's well known even today as a murderer, thief, plunderer, bandit, outlaw, and an adulterer. And uh, so they do get some things he write, some things right, he says in the film, which is uh, his, his relationship between his, uh, his slave, Rachel. But even though they portray that relationship as actually happening, they don't get it correct in how it actually did happen. Um, and so the film, you know, whitewashes some of the very uh, seedy characteristics of Newt Knight. And then, of course, Reconstruction. Uh, he says that, you know, the, the way that Reconstruction is cast, um, it, it never happened the way that it did in the film. Uh, Knight never marched downtown into downtown Ellisville. Uh, he never did that. Uh, there was never any evidence that Union troops were garrisoned in, in Ellisville. Um, and so none of that stuff happened. Again, it's a way to get at this quote-unquote lost cause myth. So this is a great article, and uh, we actually advertised it, and uh, it's had quite a lot of hits. And so if you're thinking about going and watching The Free State of Jones, whether you're watching it on DVD, that's, that's how I would do it if I was going to watch it, or you wanted to get out into the movie theater and watch it, and you should read this first so you have kind of a, a nice understanding of where it's not very historically accurate at all. Uh, but you'll have people running around saying, this is it, conclusive proof that uh, you know we're going to put a nail in the coffin of lost cause, and these are all the the imbeciles that run around trying to do this anyways. Um, So uh, it was highly publicized, highly advertised, and it just falls flat. All right, on uh, on July 13th, which was uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest's birthday, we ran an essay uh, on Nathan Bedford Forrest by Andrew Nelson Lytle, and this is the introduction from his uh, book, Bedford Forrest and His Critter Company. And um, if you've never read this biography of, of Forest by Lytle. I highly recommend it. It is um, very, very good. Of course, Andrew Nelson Lytle was a great writer uh, on his own, and so he brings this this hero of the Confederacy to life. Um, and he says at the end, and I'm not going to get into the entire piece, um, but he says at the end of, of this particular piece, but in the end, the hero always fails. Either dies as Roland dies, or the cause for which he fought is lost, or he fights, or he wins the fight, and the calculators who take over gamble it away, as with Forrest. Never in the world are the powers of darkness finally overcome, for they inhabit matter, nor without the conflict of the cooperating opposites of light and dark, good and bad, would life as we know it be. 
What the hero gives us is the image of his devotion and selflessness and the knowledge that he can save us from the power of darkness at times. Forrest had shown himself to be the hero who could save absolutely, or so the young man thought who wrote this book. And so this is why, you know, he, Forrest is characterized as this great figure, because he, he only lost one battle. And uh, even that, I mean, he was vastly outnumbered. The war was near the end. And Forrest was able, over, able to overcome uh, great odds at all times and showed himself to be what the South needed in the Western theater. And uh, kind of a side note on Forrest, uh, I was in the local library here, and I, was, um, and I live in Alabama, and I was uh, looking at the, uh, young, uh, the young children's section for my, for my kids, and they had this whole series of books on Alabama biography. And uh, there were some very good ones in there, and these things were produced in the last few years, and one of them was a biography of Emma Sampson. Now, the story of Emma Sampson is that she helped Forrest in North Alabama, uh, in, uh, in Gadsden, Alabama, and uh, he was able to, um, to do some damage against the Union Cavalry there because of that. And so um, there's a lot of complexity about Forrest, and he's often portrayed as this very negative character by the modern historical profession, but Lytle tries to uh, save his honor and point out that you know, Forrest was heroic uh, during the war, and uh, because he was trying to do something— preserve Southern independence, uh, and of course, Lytle was very much in favor of that. So uh, I think that uh, if you really want to read a good biography of Forrest, go ahead and pick up uh, Andrew Nelson Lytle's uh, biography, and there's actually a link to it. Uh, You can buy it on Amazon. It's not expensive, so I'd highly recommend that. All right, uh, let's see. On Moving forward a couple of weeks, on uh, July 26th, we published a piece by John William Corrington, Are Southerners Different? Now, Corrington was a very well-known author, poet, and uh, script writer. He actually wrote soap operas, uh, but he loved the South. And uh, so your daytime soap operas, a lot of those were actually, several of them were actually written by Corrington. And uh, he wrote this piece in 1984, and it appeared in the winter issue of Southern Partisan Magazine. And he's writing it about the 1984 election, upcoming election, where, of course, Reagan was uh, renominated by the Republican Party. And Reagan was supposed to be this champion of conservatism. And that is how he's often portrayed even to this day. And he said at the beginning of the piece, you know, in the best of all possible worlds, uh, Reagan, George Will, William Buckley, and I, conservatives all, or so it would appear, should be able to sit down over a glass of sour mash and find ourselves in such sweet agreement on the range of problems facing the world and the humankind in it that any opinion one of us shared might by and large draw nothing more than approving nods from the others. But he says this isn't the case. What he's realizing in 1984, and I think this has become very interesting today in 2016, is that there are differences. There are differences even between Southern conservatives then and, and uh, you know mainstream conservatism, and I think that's what you're seeing now. That's in some ways the Trump phenomenon. He's had a lot of backing in the South. You know, uh, Jeff Sessions from Alabama has been one of his greatest supporters. Uh, And so what you're seeing in the Trump phenomenon is that this Southerners have clung on to Donald Trump, I think, in a lot of ways, because they view him as different. Now, is Trump exactly what Corrington describes here? Absolutely not, in no way, shape, or form. But what Corrington outlines is kind of a, a, a much more 
traditional view of conservatism. It's an agrarian view of conservatism. So um, he, he points out that there are things that makes a Southerner different in this age of quote-unquote conservatism. One is their respect for land. Now, this would make him, in some ways, seem to be a rabid, you know, leftist environmentalist. But Corrington says that's not the case, because Southerners were fighting for the land in 1860 to 1861 to 1865. Their relationship with the land as an agrarian life was different. And that, in that way, they have a lot in common with uh, the agrarians in, uh, say, California, or in the West, or even in New England. Uh, and in fact, uh, I can't remember which one of the Southern agrarians it was, but they actually moved to New England uh, because they thought that by that point late in their life, that area best reflected their views of agrarianism. And he, has a, he makes a very important point. He says, concretely uh, then, when President Reagan, while still governor of California, observed that when you've seen one redwood tree, you've seen them all, he said, I cringed. I've been in uh, Marin County and walked amongst the redwoods. I did not see one that resembled another, and surely not one I would gladly hand over to destruction to be made into picnic tables or fence planks. So this is, uh, we've published essays on the website before that very much tap into this idea of preserving the environment. Uh, You know, the green movement in many ways is born out of southern concepts of environmental uh, preservation. Uh, And so it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have government involvement in these things, uh, and a nice example of that is Callaway Gardens in, uh, in Pine Mountain, Georgia. It's a private uh, nature reserve. But it means that you try to have a relationship with nature. You try to get in it. You try to, you try to experience it, uh, whether it's through hunting, sport fishing, uh, farming, even a, a farm in your backyard, uh, nature walks, these type of things that give you some type of connection with the environment. Uh, you try to preserve it for future generations. You don't try to spoil it. And again, that doesn't necessitate uh, federal involvement or all kinds of laws about recycling and all these other things. But what it does do is produce a respect for the land around you because that is concrete, as he says. Uh, The community. He says, you know, Southern conservatives generally favor the community. And um, he says, you know, on the land we live in immediate communion with others. These others will be like us and unlike us, and we will live and grow in terms of the similarities and the dissimilarities as well. We come to understand the distinction between those differences between people with accord with the community's ongoing life and those which do not. And we learn, he says, that every difference is not a crime, and that every crime is not necessarily founded in a difference. And so he says, look, the American community is actually synthetic. It doesn't exist. It can't come to terms with itself. And that's what happened in the 1950s as you had outside forces working on the South. But Southerners understood their community. And they, understood, they didn't want outside influence working on that community. And that's the way most people are. I mean, if, if Southerners would go into Vermont, say, and tell you know, Bernie Sanders uh, and his followers how to live in Vermont, they would, they would uh, bristle at that. But yet they're more than willing to tell other people how to live. And I think that's what makes Southerners different. They recognize that communities are different and that the people in those communities as an organic entity will, uh, will learn to live with those differences. But when you start forcing outside pressure on these things, it creates hostilities. And that's the whole idea of federalism to begin with. Uh, you know, when the Constitution was ratified, the federal idea was supposed to be maintained in that the states controlled the domestic concerns of their constituents. 
And you didn't want South Carolina legislating for Massachusetts or Massachusetts legislating for South Carolina. You didn't want Virginia legislating for Pennsylvania or vice versa. So uh, it, it was important to maintain that federal spirit because the states understood their communities better. And that, is, that saturates the debates. It's one of the things that people don't often focus on, but it saturates the debates. We often point to the nationalists there and say these people were far-seeing and far-reaching. They understood what was at stake, but in reality they didn't because what they were going to do is act exactly as the British were trying to do in the 1760s and destroy those organic communities. And so what Corrington is saying, Southern conservatives believe in that organic community, small. Small is beautiful. We run, you know, we, we've had pieces about that, but you know, small is important. And so that's what Corrington is saying here about community. And then finally, um, he talks about um, uh, the people, uh, you know, the world, he should say, uh, and looking at how, um, how the world is uh, through the southern lens, it's, it's different. Um, he says, I've never held with the policy of containment of Soviet ambitions because an international illness is not best treated by trying to see that it gets no worse. I do not recall that our liberal predecessors argued for the containment of national socialism as it ravaged Europe in the late 30s and 40s. They rather demanded a popular front or more or less got it. Had we stood for containment, such a policy would, I think, have drawn a line at the edge of the Western Hemisphere and let Europe and Asia, for that matter, suffer for what they must while the Nazis and the Marxists battered each other into rubble. We were not, even before Pearl Harbor, quite calculating enough for that. So um, he has a, a slightly different view, and this is kind of within the lens of the Cold War about foreign policy. Uh, and he, he was a little different in how he viewed ending the Cold War. Um, he says, on the other hand, one is obliged to suggest that if the USSR is the most dangerous source of evil in the modern world, it is by no means the only one. I think we do ourselves and our neighbors a continuing disservice in failing to require a certain minimum standard of conduct of those who claim to be our allies. Um, and then he gets into immigration policy on how relationship with other peoples. Uh, and this is, again, 1984. At last, ignoring the blistering problem of immigration policy, the profound question of just where we mean to stand in regard to our Latin neighbors, what natural interests and role we wish to evolve in Asia, and what responsive we might contemplate if, under Soviet pressure and atomic hysteria, the nations of Western Europe ask us to remove our missiles. I think a foreign policy my neighbors and I would approve must be based in decency and common sense. Um, so he says it must reward our friends, punish our enemies, and stand ready to accept the transformation of the latter category into the former whenever that seems a realistic possibility, as one hopes in the case of China. So then he defines Southern conservatism. He says, to most conservatives, conservatism, most Southerners, I should say, conservatism refers to the values implicit in a veneration for the land, respect for the legit legitimate rights of all members of the community, and a realistic, non-ideological orientation toward the rest of the world. What is it we seek to conserve? Not ephemeral forms, which cannot be preserved, but those relationships which transcend the forms and must be articulated anew within the existing, sorry, existential circumstances we find ourselves. He says, My problem with what passes for conservatism at the national level today is that, rhetoric aside, I do not see the values that concern me at the root of policy and decision-making. 
He says, as things stand, it is likely that most of us will support the Reagan administration in 1984, since, as Churchill said in regard to the democratic form, all the others are so much worse. But not with glowing enthusiasm and with no presumption that at all that eight years of conservatism will bring us much closer to reassertion of those values which, as Southerners, we continue to cherish. So he's pointing out here in 1984, it seemed that Southern conservatism was waning and having any influence, and he was being a regionalist very much in line with the Southern agrarians of the 1930s. And so it's important to think about that as we move forward. I mean, we're, there's no uh, synthetic American people. There's no one people of America. There are, there are differences in American people, and regionally, by state. Uh, and so this is why federalism works and why nationalism creates anger, because when you start using a national, quote-unquote, policy top-down approach, you create winners and losers, vast numbers of winners and losers. And in our current political state, you have a razor-thin majority either side, and so people are not going to be happy with that. And I think that's where we could, we could best learn. And, and, you know, we look at the Constitution, we talk about the Constitution, but the real principle of, of American government wasn't the Constitution, it was federalism. And that's what was lost uh, in the middle of the 18, uh, 1800s with the war, and that's what we're really, we're really lacking today and why people are so angry. Uh, okay, uh, another piece that um, we ran this, this past week is New England Bound. It's uh, published on July 28th, and it was a review of the book New England Bound, Slavery and Colonization in Early America by Wendy Warren, and this particular review was written by Terry Halsey. He does a good job with his book reviews. Um, and he points out, and this book particularly points out, that uh, slavery was a national enormity. Uh, it was a problem that was not just in the South but in the North, that primarily the slave trade was carried on by Northerners, not by Southerners. And this book does a very good job, he said, in, in, in showing that in the colonial period. Uh, he actually points out, he says, all of New England was a slave society, both in its use of slaves as household servants and in its vigorous pursuit of the slave trade. And he says, Warren recounts the observation of a visitor in New England in 1687 who wrote, There is not a house in Boston, however small may be its means, that has not one or two Negro slaves. And he says, you know, Yankee historians who want to pretend that slavery was solely a southern problem fall back on the claim that, yes, there may have been some slave trading, but slaves were a part of the family up north engaged in pleasant domestic chores that were nothing like plantation slavery. And he says this is the heart of the of historian Ira Berlin's phony distinction between a society with slaves and a slave society. Warren's research, he says, digs out the uh, voluminous accounts mostly buried in law cases regarding slaves that explode this claim, showing how New Englanders' treatment of slaves, both Indian and Negro, was as brutal as anywhere. And chattel slavery increased throughout the century because, as the previously decided traveler noted, nearly all families owned one or two, and the number of New England families was increasing. Um, a lot of people don't realize, but you know, Sam Adams was a slaveholder. Benjamin Franklin traded in slaves at one point. Um, and chattel slavery increased. Oh, I'm sorry. I just read that. Furthermore, these household slaves were not integral parts of the family. And how could they be? Their own families were routinely separated, and they were punished for both uh, fornication and marriage. Uh and he goes on to say, when New England states did get around to abolishing slavery, it was gradual and in a special way, compensated. 
and he says, you know, that uh, this compensation was generally because they sold, they sold slaves to the South. So Southerners were compensating Northerners for their slaves. Uh, which, so this entire picture of slavery, and I think there are, I mean, there are some serious historians who are starting to look at this, this question of what about Northern complicity in the institution of slavery? We can't just place this all, the burden all on the South. Northerns were very much involved. In fact, you know, Newport, Rhode Island was a center, a hub of the slave trade. And uh, the largest slave trader in South Carolina was a man named Nathaniel Russell. And uh, Russell was from Rhode Island, and he lived in Charleston, but he had connections with the slave trading hub of Rhode Island. Uh, and so it's important to note how, how ingrained this system was into the entire fabric of the American economy, North and South. For a long period of time, and that uh, it's not something that was simply a southern institution or southern problem. It was also a, a national institution or a national problem. And I think when you start looking at slavery in that way and the complexities of it, uh, it creates an entirely different picture of American history and of this conflict between North and South, which was apparent long before 1860 and 61, long before the 1850s, long before the Missouri Compromise, it was already there. In fact, uh, there's quite a lot of evidence that shows that the Missouri Compromise was actually created by Federalists who wanted to reclaim their political power. Uh, And so that's where slavery became an issue. It was a political issue, as Michael Holt has shown in his political crisis of the 1850s. It was about power, never really about the moral right and wrong of slavery. Most Northerners could care less about that. Uh, But um, it was about political power. And finally, uh, a piece we're going to go over is actually, I I did this out of order, but July 25th, written by Valerie Protopappas, it was uh, a question, do motives matter? Um, And so this is where you get into secession. It's a very short piece. Um, And in order for people to accept secession, the modern conception is, well, it has to be a morally and intellectually acceptable position for a state to secede. I mean, we're talking about secession now. We have Brexit, and we have you know this issue of Catalonia and Scotland and all these places that are talking about leaving a central state. And so oftentimes it's framed, well, I mean, it has to be morally justifiable, intellectually justifiable for us to even accept that this could be possible. But what, uh, what Pro- Valerie is saying, Valerie Protopampus, she said this is nonsense. Such a criteria would nullify the option in the first place. If you have to have the acceptance of everybody in order for it to work, then you can't even, you can even consider this. She says, The reason that Lincoln, the Lincoln government and the rest of the states of the Union went into war against the South had nothing to do with their motive for secession. Lincoln declared civil war on South Carolina and the cotton states because secession would not be permitted in the new American nation. That which motivated those 11 states was inconsequential. Secession was the recourse of an earlier time, the time of the Republic of the Founders. An indissoluble union, a concept found in the defunct Articles of Confederation, now I could could disagree with that, but not in the Constitution, was a necessity for the nation that Lincoln had defined in the Gettysburg Address, a nation that had heretofore not heretofore existed. It was this nation that Lincoln and the centrists required to enable the United States to enter the age of empire as an important player on the world stage. The old-fashioned Jeffersonian relics found in the South, liberty, individualism, Christian values, and self-government, had to be replaced by total submission to the New England vision of a city on a hill, a city in which there was no place for regional diversity or the Constitution. So I can quibble with a couple of her statements there, but this is true. 
you know, Lincoln's primary motive in going to war was to save the Union, to save the American nation, and to save his party. Uh, it wasn't had, had nothing really to do with slavery. So you, you can look at these things. You know, the war and secession are two distinct problems. Uh, and Lincoln had made that clear. So uh, when we look at this very complex issue of the 1860s, in the 1850s, in the 1840s and 30s and 20s, as we're moving forward, as the set, quote-unquote sectional conflict heats up, you have to understand that there is even discussion of secession before the 1820s, and it was all in the North, because the North believed that they would be a permanent political minority and would never have any control of the general government. And so they were able to use this issue of slavery to their advantage politically, because they could separate that allegiance between the West and the South, which they thought was going to be so detrimental to them. You know, in 1803, New Englanders were talking about seceding, because they thought that all this new territory that was acquired from the Louisiana Purchase would all be farmers who would side with the South, that this agrarian republic would destroy the commercial interests of the North, so they wanted to get out. This is what the Hartford Convention was all about in 1814 and 1815. They wanted out, or they wanted some amendments to the Constitution. If you look at their proposed amendments, the objective of those amendments was to ensure that the South could not control the government. Uh, permanently. And that's what, they, that's what they feared. And so what happens by the 1860s, Northerners have figured out, well, we control the government permanently now, and so we're not going to allow the South to leave the Union. So the South never said the North can't leave. The North just didn't. So uh, it, it's interesting how the tables turned in the 19th century and how we go from a Northern uh, agitation for secession to a Southern act, you know, de, de facto and de jure situation of secession. Uh, and then how, of course, people say this has been killed, but it might be the ideology of the 21st century. If Americans actually figured out that, you know, people are saying, well, Bernie Sanders supporters are disfranchised, or, you know, these supporters are disfranchised. Well, they are, and there's, there's no question about that. Everyone in America is disfranchised because uh, of our representative ratio, our lack of control of the central government, unless you have a lot of money. So everyone's disfranchised if you, be, if you view the government in nationalistic terms. The only way we have any type of control of the government is through real federalism. And I think that's the important concept that will carry forward. Okay, so I hope uh, you enjoyed this particular hybrid. We only went over five pieces. There was actually ten, so there's much more out there to get. Uh, and if you like the podcast, if you like the website, please consider making a uh, contribution to the Abbeville Institute. They are tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. Uh, we, do, we do exist on your contributions only. Now, come to one of our conferences, support our material, share our material online with your friends or non-friends, you know, however you want to do it. Uh, make sure that you are helping us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition moving forward. Uh, and we do appreciate your support. Until next time, good day. Good day.